you know, about nine weeks ago, nearly ten weeks ago, perhaps, um, in uh, Staten Road in the church centre, I shared our annual vision for the year, our roadmap. And I said, look, the government has a roadmap for us, but what do we, through our prayer meetings and and us spending time listening to the Lord, what do we think God's calling us to between now and September in particular? And I shared five things. And I know you've been captivated by those five things. You have not forgotten one of them. You wake up every morning and the first thing you do is, which one of the five today am I focusing on with Jesus? Don't you? No. Can anyone remember any of the five things? Can anyone remember them? Because I sat down with a piece of paper to prepare for today and I couldn't remember any of the five. (laughs) And I wrote them. You know how vision works. Sounds good at the time. You distill it down to something that you hope is memorable, but it doesn't. But I'll tell you one thing that has stuck with me are the two pictures that I've shared with you. Can you remember the two pictures that I've shared with you in the life of the church over the last year? What was one of them from the Bible? (laughs) Backdraft, yes. That was one. And what was the other one? The Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, a picture very shared with us so many times over the year, that God calls us to cross the Red Sea, this difficult, challenging, impossible situation without him. And some of us would be at the front doing well, and some of us would be sort of plodding along in the middle, and some of us struggling at the back saying, no, go, leave me, I'll die here. And the, the invitation from the Lord was, if you're the front and doing well, run back and help other people. If you're the back and struggling, don't give up. Let other people carry you. And that God was going to bring us through this together. That's been our passion and our hope for our church this year. And another picture that I have shared, um, a tiny little Bible verse occurs three times in Scripture. It talks about opening the windows of heaven. And, and uh, the idea of a backdraft. If you get a room, it's very dangerous for firemen. If, if there's a fire in a room where everything is closed, the oxygen gets used up in the room, but the fire doesn't go out completely. What happens is it's like the fire goes out, but the room gets superheated to hundreds and hundreds of degrees of temperature. And if you let any air in, what happens is that the oxygen rushes in and There's literally an explosion. I said to some of you, go and look at, have some fun on YouTube looking at backdrafts, looking at how explosive they are. Just heat and oxygen. And and I've been praying, Lord, would you open the windows of heaven? And, And in that word that I shared, I felt that the Lord had said that he was letting the enemy close off our meeting spaces. One of the reasons was we have taken them for granted for far too long. And he wanted to show us how important they really are. But that at the right time, God's time, not the enemy's, the enemy wants to choke us off and kill us as the church. But at the right time, God would open the windows of heaven and let the oxygen in. And I shared five things out of that, basically, that over the summer for five months, we were hoping to care and support one another. Uh, we've got small groups and socials and lots of things happening. We were resetting our Sunday gatherings. Come and be here. We wanted to continue to reach out into our community and not, be, uh, not fall in upon ourselves and also to look for new opportunities about what God was doing. Do you know, when we go and pray tomorrow and walk around the high street, we are praying that God opens the windows of heaven for the things that he has for us. This that we have been through 
is exactly the kind of thing in history that the enemy uses to take us out or God uses to ignite our faith. And that's the invitation. So that was our vision for the year. And we're just revisiting it, checking in on it today. You know, any of you done any sailing? I'm rubbish at sailing, but there's a thing called tacking where you have to adjust. You're like, I'm going there, but we've gone here, and you have to tack back into the wind. And so the, the word for me to share this morning about our vision is, where, where are you this morning with all of that? Crossing the Red Sea, having the windows of heaven open over you. So what I'd like you to do right now, and if you're at home you can do this, turn to the person you're with, or talk to Jesus about this. And those of you here in the room, turn to someone next to you, but maybe take those two words and those pictures. Turn to someone next to you and say, where are you at with that? Where are you at with crossing the Red Sea? And where are you at with the windows of heaven being opened over you? Ready, steady, go. We'll start back. So I say the great danger is I'm sick of the sound of my own voice. Did the welcome, did the update. Um, but if you have a Bible, will you turn to Psalm 62? We are in a series called Reset. The premise for this series is the preaching team got together and prayed and did stuff. Was There was a word that Bev and I heard at a national church leaders meeting. And it was, it was a simple image, the idea that most of us go through life with like, like a phone and we get all our preferences and things lined up how we want. But what God was doing was doing a hard reset. Some of us had to do a hard reset on your phone. And it's a pain, isn't it? Because you have to put back in all your passwords and everything else that you do. But God was saying, will you let me reset you? Will you let me reset your life around me and not your preferences? And we, as the preaching team met and we prayed, we felt that the Psalms, the Psalms are God's constant reset for us. They are the prayer book of the church in history to meet with God and process life and draw close to him and receive from him. So we're resetting. But we've got Psalm 62, and let me read that with you. Now, uh, I'm going to read just verses 1 to 2 and then 5 to 8. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my rock, my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. So uh, I had um, prepared in advance today a different talk and uh, was very mindful of coming to today. And as we start to meet in person, this is one of the most dangerous times for us in this whole thing that we've been to. It's the most dangerous politically and economically coming out of COVID, not in the drama itself, but coming out of it. But it's also one of the most dangerous times in terms of our faith 
and how we process that and, and where we are with the Lord. And I had a talk all prepared from Mark 4. You know the parable of the seeds and the sower? And it's a wonderful parable, and I spent a lot of time working on it, that God comes along and he sows seed, but to activate the seed, he plows. And that's the pain of life being turned upside down and turned over. And some seed never grows because it's too hard. Some is taken away, and some grows and is choked to death. But some seed grows, and there is a miraculous harvest. And I came with that message. Well, I was going to do that message with you today and say, where are you? What kind of seed are you? as God tills us and turns us because of this dangerous moment that we're in. But I felt God tell me to pause and not do that. And as I came to this week, I've had to wait and wait and wait upon the Lord for something different to share. And I felt him instead tell me to talk about the potential, not the danger, but the most exciting possibility that is available to every Christian today and at this moment in history. By the way, on your app, if you've got the app, we've got a thing called fill-in notes. It's like a handout, and you can put your notes in there and keep a record of things on Sundays, and the Bible verses are in there and other stuff. So that was the introduction. Second of, I think, five things I'm sharing with you on this this morning is this, and it says this on the handout, on the fill-in notes. What is the second most important question we want to be asked? You're thinking, is this a trick? Second most. Well, it probably will feel like the most important question, but I'm a preacher, so as you guess, the next question will be the most important one. But have any of you ever found yourself with friends? Have you ever said to yourself or to other friends, they never ask me how I am? Have you ever done that? Have you got friends who never ask you how you are? And you think, are they really friends at all? Um... With real friendship, there's reciprocity. Real friends, or the kind of friends you think, if I never contacted them, I don't think I would ever hear from them. You ever had that conversation with someone? And maybe, and this is the second most important question, because it could be a bit like that with our relationship with Jesus. We know instinctively that friendship requires reciprocity, requires an interest. How are you? and to talk about how we are and share at that level. But the first and the most important question is of an even bigger order, and it's the one that God uses in Scripture again and again and again, and it's in this passage in this psalm. And the question is this, and it was the title for today, the subtitle, How is your soul? Not how are you. A much deeper question. How's your soul? Um, and what I want to do is, let's look at these other Bible, I've got some other Bible readings here. So Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God. My soul finds rest in God. Um, I was going to, we haven't got time this morning, do a, do a study on the word soul through scripture. And the number of times it says, my soul, my soul, my soul, my soul, my soul, my soul. Jesus talks about our soul. Our, Paul talks about it. What is your soul? Your soul is the core of who you are. In scripture, we have a heart and a mind and a body and a spirit and all those things, but your soul is most you and it's what will continue in eternity. My soul, the essence of who I am. So we can say to one another in COVID, how are you? But I can also turn around and I can say to Guy and Sue sitting on the front hoping to avoid me, 
I can say, Guy Sue, how's your soul? Do you get the difference between the two questions? You see, Jesus doesn't just ask us, how are you? He asks us the question that the Father asks us. How is it with your soul? By the way, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, knew that question and he ran, when he was a student at university, he had accountability groups uh, and started those. They were quite revolutionary at the time, but with young men like himself. And when they got together, he realized, let's stop asking the questions about what we want and even how we are. Let's talk about our lives at the level that God does. And they had this 21 accountability questions. And one of them was, how is it with your soul? Share there. How is your soul? And God cares about us. He cares what's happened to us this past year and a quarter. And in my... Let me try and get a focus here. Do you know, my wife and I, we've been married over 30 years. And it's interesting watching our kids grow up, leave home and enter into those things that we remember doing as if they were yesterday. And we think of all the things that we have been through, the struggles and the ups and downs of life for work and identity and family and in our marriage. And then there have been times in the midst of all of those when we hope these things will get better and things will be, the things around us will be transformed. But there's always been a moment in our married life when we've looked at each other. Bev has asked, usually Bev will ask me this, and she'll say, are we okay? Have any of you ever done that with your partner? The whole world can be falling apart around you. And the most important question is, are we all right? Are we okay? Are you and I at that level of our souls? Are we well? Is it well with our souls? And at this moment coming out of COVID, one of the most important questions to ask is this. How is our soul, this inner essence of who we are in relationship with Jesus and the Father, and, if I, and one, of the, one of the things that's been the most difficult for me in, in COVID as, as a pastor, I, got, I, got, I became a pastor because I love people, believe it or not. I really do. I care about people. And I miss. I've realized by not being able to have in-person meetings, not just Sundays, it's the quick hug or handshake or touch or grabbing something where someone just gives you you can tell by someone's face how they are or they just give you a snatched conversation about what's going on in their lives just the thousands of places in the body of Christ where you get to know how people's souls are and and you know how wonderful zoom is to know how your soul is it's not been great has it and if I could I would invite you all up here And it's the most important question as we come out of COVID. If this is your church and your church family, or you're thinking of this as your church family, in this next season, this is the most important question. How is your soul? How are you in relationship to Jesus and the Father and his purposes for your life? There is no more important question than that. How is your soul? I wish you could come up and tell all of us. Is your soul close to the Lord? Is it a bit numb? Is it indifferent? Is it far away? Do some of you not even know where your soul is anymore? Did it get left behind the first weekend in March last year somewhere? Maybe it did. And wherever your soul is, it's absolutely fine. 
There is no guilt, there is no shame, there is no condemnation, however you have gone through this time in COVID, because our loving Heavenly Father comes to every single one of us, every single one of you, and he says, how's your soul? In fact, in Genesis 3, God asks a very disclosing question. This is Adam and Eve who were able to walk with God in the cool of the day. Can you imagine being that close to God? And then they hide from him as if they could hide from him. Still an irony that we think we can hide from God. There is nowhere we can go, the Bible tells us, and hide from God. And God walks in the cool of the day and he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? So that's the question this morning. How's your soul and with relationship to the Father, where are you? What's at stake? Number four of our five things. Well, I said there is a danger at this time. Have any of you heard of entropy? Anyone remember their science lessons at school? Anyone remember the second law of thermodynamics? You're getting the shivers going back to physics and school. And it's the idea that things that are in order, full of energy, dissipate over time into disorder. What is hot becomes cold. What was together disintegrates. What was a person grows old and ends up in the ground. Entropy. And that's one of the greatest dangers in a moment like this in history. And here's one of the ways that you know you're dealing with entropy and disorder and energy. It's the moment when you think, stuff it, I'm not getting online to click on to book a service at eight o'clock in the morning. I never had to do it, I refuse to do it. That's entropy right there. It's disorder around the things of life. We get frustrated. Have any of you been frustrated with very small things in this past year? It's interesting, isn't it, in the face of COVID, with the, those irritations that irritate us, entropy at work, frustrations. And do you know what? Satan prowls around, Scripture tells us, Peter tells us, like a roaring lion looking to devour us. And most of the ways that the enemy picks us off and devours us is not by making you wake up one morning and go, Jesus, I disavow you and I become an atheist. Most of us don't do that. What he does is he nibbles away at us day by day, week by week, month by month, until we end up in a place that we could never have imagined that we would have got to. And he isolates us. Entropy. He is the master of entropy. It's a big theological issue. Why does our world decay? Because of the fall, because of our disconnection from God. Its orientation now is to disorder and decay. And Satan, as the father of lies, tries to precipitate decay and disconnection from God. But thanks be to Jesus Christ who raises us from the dead and reverses the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. As Satan will whisper his lie, don't worry, check out, drift along, wait till this is all over. But Mark 6, let me read to you Mark 6, verse 38. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? That's the word to Jesus. Do you remember those? Any of you remember those? What good does it serve you to survive COVID financially, successfully, and with your health, and yet lose something of your soul and your relationship with Jesus? That's what Jesus is concerned about. 
And I think people are going to look back in history as we can, we, you know, you and I can go online, you can do it easily, never mind buying books, you can actually just go online and look up articles and look at the chronology of history. And you can see moments like this where Satan has picked off people from the body of Christ and see the moment when their faith petered out. Did you know once in North Africa, 400 AD was full of churches and revival and the spirit of Jesus. And now there's almost nothing. There was a revival in Wales at the beginning of the 20th century. Don't any of you know about that? Hundreds of thousands of people met with Jesus. And now Wales can be like a wasteland. What happened? where the enemy picked us off and faith petered out. And, and the image that came to mind as I was writing that sentence was some people, um, I found, I always thought that my family, there was no, no Christians or any faith in it at all. My dad called himself an atheist. I'd never seen my parents or grandparents ever go to church for anything in their lives or mention God once. And I was shocked to find out that my father was confirmed as a Catholic when he was a young boy and never mentioned that to me. And my grandfather... And my, I've lost count because I'm still trying to find them, my other great uncles, and I think there are about eight of them, were all Catholic and all went to Mass regularly. And I've traced their family, and I found a church in Newcastle on my side of the family where they were born and confirmed and married, and something of Christian faith was at the center of their daily lives. But after the Second World War, they moved to Luton, and it died. And I knew there was nothing of that in my family tree. And that came to mind. And I thought, this is one of those times in history people are going to look back and do their genealogy in 100 years' time. And they're going to go, that was it. That was the moment when this Christian thing in my family tree died out. That's what's at stake. Young people in the future are going to go, I never knew my grandparents used to be Christians. That's what's at stake. Or on the other hand, there is this alternative and invitation from Jesus to be on the ground and take part in the greatest move of God that you and I have ever seen in our lives. And I believe that. People have been praying for that for so long. People much more faithful in prayer than me. If ever there was a time in history, it is times like this when God brings us to the end of ourselves and he says, have you had enough of yourselves yet? Do you want me? And this is the last thing. This is the invitation. One of my fears is, when I talk about Jesus and my relationship with Jesus, is that you don't believe me. <laughs> Some of you have been around this church a long time. And you're like, oh, it's just that what thing that Jason does, talking about Jesus. Or I've become professionalized. Well, he's a pastor. He gets paid to have a relationship with Jesus. <laughs> gets paid to be close to Jesus. I'll tell you what, the number of pastors I know who are so far from Jesus, it is staggering. And many pastors feel like they are paid to do anything and everything other than be close to Jesus. It's one of the sad tragedies. It's one of the things with pastors that we talked to in this last year. The pressures under COVID to do so many things instead of leaning. And, out. and we've been asking that question, how is your soul? So despite that trepidation, I'm going to finish today because I have nothing else to offer you than Jesus. Nothing. 
We have an app, we have a hall, we have PA, we have some programs, we have some events, we have opportunities, we have programs in the community, we have all of those things, but they mean nothing without Jesus. So I'm gonna take a risk this morning and share with you the answer to that question. If you were to say to me, so Jason, how's your soul? And the reason I felt the Lord tell me to answer that question with you at the end here is because I hope it breaks over you anything that the enemy is doing, and I hope it releases you to be able to lean into that question and say honestly, without guilt or fear or shame before the Lord, this is how my soul is. Because your heavenly Father is desperate to care for your soul and strengthen you. Do you know, in this last year and a quarter, I have worked more than ever. When we were bivocational, I had two jobs and three little kids. This has probably, I, if I'd counted up the hours, I think I've done more work this time than in planting the church. Because what that is involved in is keeping running all lots of the things that we did, reinventing the things that we did, trying to start new things, pastoral things. It's like 10 years of pastoral issues have manifest in the life of our church. Marriages that have imploded under the pressure of COVID that none of you will know about because you, it's only in a few months' time when you're going to go, I don't see that person anymore. Marriages, child protection issues, enormous child protection issues, personal issues. And, and dealing with staff and staff off and staff sick and people and, and loss, people leaving our church and not even knowing that they've left until we find out accidentally from someone else, people leaving because they hate our church and Bev and I and saying, we hate you and we're leaving, people leaving for really good reasons because God has done something awesome and God has moved some of our people because at this time he said, this is my best for you. And we have wept over that, but felt that. And this rising tide of loss, and then Bev's dad has died, and one of our best and oldest friends has died, whose funeral was yesterday. And Bev and I used to say, if there is one person whose funeral I will not miss, it's Edina Seaton. And because of COVID, I could not be at her funeral. One of the greatest people in my life. My son lost his dream job as a trainee air traffic controller. My disabled daughter being rehomed locally in supported accommodations has nearly killed me with the number of hours and time. And I have worked between 70 to 80 hours per week for a year. I have had leave canceled that I can't get to. And I share all of that with you, not as a sub story, because I know many of you have faced worse than that. But I have not been immune to this. My soul, and I have sat down before the Lord, and, and I felt the Lord encourage me in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 11. Even the great apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Here's the Corinthian church, who probably thought the same. Here's the apostle Paul. Nothing bothers him. He said, I don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles we've experienced. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Even Paul said, this was too much. We're going to die. We felt we'd receive the sentence of death, but this happened so we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And I was like, I said, thank you, Jesus. He said, it's all right, Jason. It's all right for it to be too much. It is too much. And I sat before the Lord Easter last year, and then the Lord spoke to me out of that. 
And I said, Lord, I just don't know where to begin. I don't know how to deal with it for myself or people in church. or every- I, just, I just don't know. I can't listen to enough podcasts fast enough to find out what's happening. I can't change things quickly enough. I can't have enough meetings to look after people. I just don't know what to do. And I felt the Lord say, but there is one thing you can do. You know, like, have any of you had those kinds of conversations with the Lord? He gets a bit sneaky, doesn't he? He goes, there's one thing you can do. You're like, he said you could spend time with me. And I had one of those sort of to and froing conversations with the Lord, and it went a bit like this. The Lord said, do you think that you getting closer to me would be good for you and for your church? I went, it's a trick question, isn't it? Of course the answer is yes. So I started to pray and I realized that how poor my prayer life was. And I realized that my relationship with God was one where I really believed about him and I knew Jesus had saved me and I would turn to him and most of the time I prayed I would be praying for you and things in the church. But I had stopped spending time with the Lord just because of how beautiful he is. So I got some books by great Christians about intimacy with God. And it was like a fog in my head. And I'm good at reading. I'm an academic on the side. And I'm like, I couldn't, I was read this and think, these people are not normal. Blissed out in the presence of God. Get a grip and go and do some work. That was what I felt like. And I knew I was missing something. So my prayer became this. Lord, I don't know how to pray. Teach me to pray. And I started to pray, and to pray, and to pray, and to pray. And I share where I'm at with you at this moment, not because it's anything about me, but because of him. But I have reached a point where I think I've probably prayed more in the last six months than in the whole of my Christian life. I said to the Lord, if you want me to pray, Lord, because I'm still doing all that other stuff, get me up early. I'm an early riser. I've been waking up earlier and earlier and earlier. It's very annoying for my wife. (laughs) And spending, at first I struggled to pray 10 minutes. Now I can sit for three hours in God's presence. And and again, I can't even believe those words are coming out of my mouth. Because I never thought I would find that intimacy with God. And prayer has been the doorway. And it's grown. So I stand before you today and the answer to is, how is my soul? Is, I'm exhausted and overwhelmed but closer to the Lord than ever. What I want to finish with now is just something really, really personal about Jesus. Jesus is the answer. We know that, don't we, for a Christian? What's the question? The answer is Jesus. And we try and make analogies and apologetics and persuade one another, not just about belief in Jesus, but why Jesus is a better lifestyle option and why following him is better for us. We can come up with lots of apologetics and explanations. But at the end of the day, we get to a place where I, I've literally run out of explanations to tell you why you might think Jesus is amazing. It's a bit like trying to explain why I love my wife. Um, sometimes Bev will say to me, do you love me? And I'll say, of course I do. And she'll say, why do you love me? And I'll go, well, you know, you're pretty, you're smart, intelligent, you're kind. And I list all these things. You should go, yeah, but other than that, why do you love me? And then you get to a point where you go, I just do. (laughs) Stupid woman. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Of course I love you. Some of you know that. Like with your kids. Just gets to a place where you go, I just love you. There is no explanation or apologetic needed. 
just the most pure thing in the world here in our souls. Love. Tell you what, watching the memorial for one of the most beautiful women who has been in my life and watching her love and her soul celebrated. Do you know, um, Bev and I have discovered a TV series called Death in Paradise. Any of you watched it? It's great because it's completely harmless and innocuous. It's a bit like Bergerac. It's set on a, Mediter- it's set on a um, uh, Caribbean island, and you realise never go there for a holiday because everyone gets murdered. Yeah, and it, it's just harmless, and it's a bit like Colombo on a on a, and it's got ten series of it. And we tune it in, and we've been watching it over the over the last few months. And, and there was one of the f- things about it that we love the most. It's our, it's my favourite TV program for us both to fall asleep together. Because it doesn't matter, because you can just always go, you never miss anything. Everything's the same in every episode. And I'll get to why love is important at the end of this. And there was one moment, we were lying in bed, and we had both dropped off to sleep, and I woke up, and, and Bev's there looking glorious and beautiful as she does when she snores. And I looked across at her, and I said to myself, I love after 30 years being this close to someone, I couldn't even put it into words, the joy of falling asleep to a crappy TV program in the presence of someone that I love. And you know what? Knowing Jesus is like that and more. That register, that connection is available to us. It's what Jesus always intended for us. And at this time in history, he is desperate for us to have. And over this last year, I have found they're not just metaphors, but he is living water. He is my rod and staff. He is the gate. He is the blood of my life. I am a child of God. Abba, Father. My life is about knowing him, using my gifts and abilities and everything that I have, and taking risks and praying for the sick and casting out demons and expecting miracles. And in my lack, to keep on giving him more and more and more. Because when I sit with him, I say, I love this. And I want to finish most personally, if I can, with this. In uh, some of my prayer times and meditations, I felt the Lord invite me to revisit some of the things I'm struggling with in my soul. And the Lord has said, Jason, can I take you there? And it's always, again, a trick question, is it, when the Lord, when he says, can I go there in your life with you? Because you know it's for our good, but we often don't want to. And I went, Lord, of course you can. Are you, are you, have you got enough stamina for me to finish with a couple of personal stories? You sure? You're like, is, can we say no? When I became a Christian and met Jesus... I had a one-year-old brother, another brother who was up to all sorts and being arrested, and I was looking after my mother, and my father had abandoned us, and the only, I only went to church out of accident to make sure the church didn't do anything bad to my mum. But I met Jesus, and someone shared with me who Jesus was, and I thought, if I'd have known, and I realise now when I was younger, I'd always sensed the presence of God, I just didn't know what it was. So I became a Christian, and that night, and, then I, and some of you have heard the story, I woke up the next day and I said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? I knew that first morning on October the 7th, 1986, that my life was his. But I felt the Lord said to me, Jason, can I take you back to that night? And I went, okay, Lord. He said, can I show you something? I went, yes, Lord. And he said, when you went to sleep that night, would you like me to show you where I was? 
okay. In a house where I'd started to drink every night to go to sleep, but for the first time had not drunk, with my mother in bed with depression and my one-year-old brother, and nothing changed, but everything changed. It was like the Lord gave me a bird's-eye perspective of me in my bed. And I'd gone to bed, I'd met Jesus, and the Lord showed me that he was sitting next to me. And he reached his hand out and put it on my head. And then in this experience, he leant forward and he kissed me on the head and he said, kiss on the head. And at that point, I think I cried for about half an hour. And I'll tell you why I cried for half an hour. Because later in life, in one of the most difficult times of my life, I was on holiday in Swindon. It's not a great place to go on holiday, is it? Hungerford, a bit nearby. And I had three little kids. I was bivocational. And I was beside myself with everything that was going on and that I couldn't attend to and get to. And I've got a video. My kids love this video. And I videoed them, and they were bouncing around. And to some of the most fun things my, my eldest daughter and my son ever did. And there's a moment at the end of this video and I remember in that moment how absolutely exhausted and beside myself was and not close to Jesus and my little precocious daughter bounces over to me and she goes kiss on the head and I felt the presence of God break into my life at that moment and the Lord said now you know where that came from. And I've had moment after moment after moment of spending time with Jesus this year. Last one I'll share. You know the story of Jesus says he's the gate to the sheep pen? You know that story? And um, oh. One of the things I didn't know was that often a sheep pen wouldn't actually have a gate, a physical gate. Did you know that? The shepherd was the gate. The shepherd would sit there and the sheep wouldn't go past him and nothing would come in because the shepherd was there. And then they had a, a pen around them. And, and I revisited that verse and I felt the Lord say, come and sit with me. And he was the shepherd and he was the gate. And I sat at the gate of my life and I've had a meditative exercise. I sat with Jesus as the gate of my life, day after day after day after day, just sitting with him. And him dealing with why I was scared. I was a little boy in the back of the pen who was terrified to come and sit at the front. Terrified by the world and all that I was facing. And I, I'm struggling to put this into words, but there was one moment on one day where I was just sitting with him. And I realized I was like a little boy. Have any of you ever taken hold of your grandparents' hands or your father's hands? Remember when you were a child? Did you ever used to stroke them, look at their liver spots? I used to do a thing with my dad's hand. You can put your hand on here and you can press your vein and make the blood stop. Have you ever done that in your own hand? A lot of you are nodding. I used to do that to my dad's hand. And I realized in this prayer time I was doing that with Jesus. Close to him. He is the gate. He is the truth. He is the life. Let's stand.